That's really what we're doing. You know, everything about what I've been doing for the last 10 years has been about changing the status quo of cocktails from within. I'm not on the outside, I'm not on the periphery, kind of going, I wish it was different. You know, I'm I'm nuts deep in it. Hello everyone, welcome back to the Birmingham Food Podcast that is Breaking Bread. I'm your host, Liam. Just me today, no Carl, for this intro. Don't worry, he's still on the episode. He's just not here for this intro today. With everything going on, we've been mad short on time. You know, our schedules have just gone crazy between October, November, December. Everything's gone mental. Loads of cool places still opening up. Loads of good things still happening in Brum. Gonna keep this intro real short for everyone because this episode is incredible, an hour and a half long, and it's so in depth. I mean, Rob, if you've just ever met him or if you've ever been to 1881 Atelier, or I mean, I'm not even gonna try and pronounce the first bar, but everything he does, just nothing he does is boring. Everything's unique. Just completely thinks outside the box just does his things his own way. Obviously, a lot of people know him from back in the old Edge Baston Boutique Hotel designed the menu there when he started working for that group with the Kenilworth Hotel and then Edgebaston Boutique Hotel. Just, his drinks are phenomenal. I mean, you hear Carl raving about them all the time. He loves, absolutely loves them. And his new venue, Atelier, really is somewhere special. If you haven't been down there, it's up at Jewelry Quarter. I mean, it's stunning on the inside, stunning on the outside. Just somewhere you've really got to go and visit and witness for yourself and the perfect setting for a mind like Rob's, really. We recorded this from Atelier. So obviously there is a little bit of background noise. There's a fridge that pops on and off. Sporadically through the episode, I tried to get rid of as much of that as possible, but it wasn't possible to get rid of all of that. But hopefully that doesn't distract you too much from the awesome stuff that Rob's got to say, because, man, it's fascinating. As I said, this was about an hour and a half long, but I could have done an extra hour and a half. I could have went longer. I was so interested in everything he had to say. He's very passionate. He bangs the table. I mean, I'm going to have to try and get some kind of boom mics or something, because I've noticed now that these people that we're speaking to they're so passionate about what they do as they're talking the the hands are banging the table and it, it does come through on the mic and that's something i'm gonna look at getting sorted obviously if you love this episode we're on a mission to tell as many people as possible how amazing birmingham is we're often overlooked and i'm sick of it so let's spread the positive birmingham message far and wide the way you can help us do that is by liking and subscribing on spotify or Apple Podcasts, so wherever you listen, if it's got a writing system. The algorithm pushes us up, the more likes we get. So that means we get heard by more people, maybe outside Birmingham, who might think, wow, I didn't realise Birmingham had all this awesome stuff. Let's get going there. So if you could support us that way, that'd be amazing. Obviously, it doesn't cost a penny. Thank you, everyone, for your support. The last few weeks, we've had so much great feedback about the last few podcasts, and we've absolutely loved it. It makes it all kind of worthwhile for us. So, ladies and gentlemen, Rob Wood. How you doing, Rob? You alright, mate? I'm good. Yeah, really good. Good to have you on. It's been a long time coming in. It's been a while, yeah. yeah. Sorry for 
for delays. No, <laughs> no but well, we've cut you at the best possible time, I think. Yeah, I think yeah. if we could have picked a time, it would have been this. Yeah. This so it's worked out time. well. Like, now we've got the opening out of the way and it's a bit more settled. It's uh it's your feet under the table here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the opening was a lot. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. yeah. We were chatting to Rachel on that way down to Leeds last week and we were just saying, like, how was it? And she was like, exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> she was like, it's exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> two years of nothing, nothing, nothing. And then literally everything happened in two months. Wow. Yeah, from nothing literally to opening in two months after two years of waiting and planning. It was crazy. Yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> we'll get to that and we'll obviously go right back into history like we always like to do but i put a thing on instagram about questions for you and oh, um i missed i that. thought it'd be rude not to ask this one soon as it's from the legendary tommy tommy matthews you know <laughs> passing fancies but he wants to know what your favorite sneaker was Ooh, that's on the spot well actually there's um there's a uh, an af1 paint splatter that i'm obsessed with getting a third pair of at the moment um it's like a really unique colorway. It's very like Jackson Pollock-esque. And I've never seen anything like it. And I saw it and I was just immediately fell in love with it. And so um, that's, yeah, outside of like going back, like old school stuff, I'll probably say, yeah, like classic AF1s in like unique colorways I absolutely love. But yeah, this particular paint splatter one, anybody has a 11 <laughs> floating around. <laughs> I'm looking for a pair. <laughs> How many pairs of trainers do you have then? Is it like Currently, a massive one? Yeah. Uh, I would say it's probably around forty at the moment. Wow! Yeah, have like a. Have <laughs> I thought like you were going to say four. It's like that's still a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, no it's, yeah, um, but it's not like I. Yeah, I, I wouldn't. It's weird because I wouldn't necessarily say I'm a collector. I, I wear them all. And I go through like phases of wearing one pair for ages, and then I'll see like a crack in the leather. I screw them back in the box, <laughs> try and get another <laughs> pair immediately. Do you have any that you just wouldn't wear or you haven't worn? Or um, no, uh, I have a pair of Momofuku high tops. Nice. Um, that I know are you know I'm never getting another pair of those. Um, so I've maybe worn them. Less than 10 times. It was funny because uh, David Chang actually put them on his TikTok in the last 40 hours. And uh, Rory from uh, Pause sent me the TikTok. And I was like, I own a pair of these. And he was like, no way, I didn't even know they existed. <laughs> so I like went and grabbed it out of the box and like sent him a picture. He's like, ooh, sexy. <laughs> Are they Nike or something? Adidas? Yeah, they're, 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 they're AF1 high tops, but they're in oh, like a black denim. And yeah. they've got the peach on the, on the back heel. And then the Momofaku logo on the... No, on the, yeah. I know nothing about trying this, like, <laughs> next to nothing. No, I, I think there's going to be a lot of people scratching their heads now going, what the fuck? Yeah, <laughs> Dave Chang? <laughs> yeah, if anyone out there is wondering who Dave Chang is. Where the hell have you been? Yeah, sw- <laughs> sw- switch channel. <laughs> yeah, 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 you shouldn't, this is the wrong podcast if mm. you don't even know who David Chang is. Yeah. <laughs> you ain't got the Kanye West trainers then. Uh, honestly. Not anymore. You, 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 you may have seen on my uh, on my Twitter in the last uh, few days, I literally hate that man yeah. more than money could. Like, I've, I, everybody who owns a pair of Yeezys, I have, like, screwed my face up at. And then I, uh, I, <laughs> I Instagrammed the other day, like someone said, oh, it was, he'd been dropped by this person, this person, this person, this person, and this person had got rid of him and, you know, no more sponsorship from this company or whatever. And I, uh, I retweeted it saying, shouts, vindication, Captain Holt style. <laughs> like Brooklyn Nine-Nine, vindication! <laughs> I was like, this is it. Finally, he's got his, uh, he's got his just desserts. Do you 
find that you get fanatical about a lot of things because you seem to be quite fanatical about obviously cocktails yeah drinks yeah i suppose i do have like my interest sets but i tend to grab something and i'll like take it as far as i think i can take it or until something stops me Mm. um when i was a kid i was into lego and it had like set upon set upon set like chests and chests of lego pieces just just building like random stuff and then um i'd kind of not really touched upon it for years and years and years and years and then i don't know what it was that got me back into it and all of a sudden i was like damn i saw a couple of lego sets and i was like oh i need to i need to buy that whatever it was i don't, I don't remember what the first set was um and now i have like 60 like really high price sets okay it's like it's big money some of them sets oh, you see yeah. you like i mean it's the, like, it's the classic example of the difference between men and boys is the price of their toys like a hundred percent i i found it really actually like meditative when i'm building i don't really like think about anything else which is kind of unique proposition for me because i i'm always working like i do everything on my phone um and like I've, i physically bump into people on the streets like walk like into them mm-hmm. because i've got my head in my phone at all times like it's just i'm always 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 doing something um when i'm when I'm Legoing, when I'm building, I, uh, I I totally zone out. It is like meditation. Like I don't think of anything else. It's just like that next piece, that next brick, that next placement, that next page. Um, I find it amazing. And then as you're building, because of the way Lego build sets, there's always like little secrets like in the middle of things that only you know as the builder. Because once once you've covered it up, you won't like you never see those things. So yeah, like from paintball airsoft to lego and sneakers and uh like booze spirits and a few other kind of things yeah i tend to like career down stuff like head as far as i can yeah <laughs> until something pulls about usually money i'm like oh i've spent far too much money on yeah, this particular endeavor yeah well you yeah, move these well, fucking like, kindra is so supportive of the things that i like find myself like into mostly because i think she sees the pleasure I get from whatever that is. You know, a, a few years ago, probably from her, like I remember when I when I left uh, the Edge Baston Hotel, it was it was something that she said to me. She said, you know, you're not a tree. You don't have roots here. Um, and I was in like a really not a great place in my life at the time. And like wasn't being treated very well. And yeah, it was a bit of a dark time. But she made me realize that. And she's been that kind of like person that's, pushed me and pulled me in and out of those kind of like good and bad places and i think that she, when she sees that there's something that like i'm fixating on whatever it is because it's not my work whatever it is um she's always very very supportive of that and uh, i think because she wants to see me do something other than work because i actually really <laughs> love my job <laughs> you know like we've we've kind of built ourselves a venue where we get to hang out with really nice people serving nice drinks that we don't hate making. You know, those who will enjoy being there, hopefully, and, you know, everyone's in this, like, nice space. And when we close, everybody pays their bell and leaves, and and we go home. Like, happy days, right? Happy days, yeah. Yeah, and, like, so many people are just, like, constantly complaining about what they're doing. So get out, make a change, like, do something. Like, be be the positive force in your own life, you know? But it's not the it's not it's not the done thing, no. You, it's not. You're supposed to just go and get a job and yeah. be happy that you've got that job and moan about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Be happy, but not 
secretly not be happy. Yeah. And then moan about it all the time. That's yeah. what you're supposed to do. Apparently. And, yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm one of those people who I couldn't possibly do a job I didn't enjoy. I, ju I just cannot do it. So, like physically against my ability to, to, to human um, to not enjoy what I do. And if, if I'm not enjoying what I'm doing, pretty obvious to everybody in the room <laughs> that, I'm not, that I'm not enjoying it. Um, as, uh, as Alex has, um, you know, <laughs> realized he is just, you know, wearing my heart on my sleeve, both my personal and my, uh, my work life. But I think it's, I think it's really important, you know, to, you know, what is the goal if not happiness, right? Like money comes and goes, possessions also come and go, you know, things break. Happiness is the goal. It's gotta be. It's got to be other people's yours you know like it's why i do what i do you know it's not about making yeah. drinks it's not about anything else about if you're a little bit happier when you left than when you walked in the door even just an iota then we did our job mm. you know that that that's it all the fancy stuff that goes on this beautiful venue all the glassware and the liquor and the process and the thought and the stories and all that kind of stuff it comes down to nothing if you didn't enjoy it yeah I've uh, one of my most valuable lessons that I've probably taught myself this last two years is that like happiness isn't a destination; it fluctuates like, and it's just hundred percent. You know what's happy now is might not be, happy. and then instead of trying to judge yourself on, oh, am I happy? Maybe I might not be so happy today, but I could be tomorrow. It's not a destination. There, you get there and you go, fuck me, I'm happy. I'm a happy yeah. person. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then the next day you don't want to get out of bed. Yeah. <laughs> 100 yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you realize that you have to work on it and it's a sliding scale right like i'm yes. as i'm as happy in a three star eating incredible food as i am sat on the sofa eating you know takeaway chinese yes yeah oh that's, that's great anyway yeah 100 <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's yeah being on the sofa eating takeaway yes that's that's up there it's hard the to be isn't it yeah. Life, yeah really hard yeah. i would say you have like a unique way of looking at things and a unique way of doing things and I feel like you're quite a creative person. Has, has anyone tried to manage that out of you in the past or? <laughs> Everybody. Uh, <sure>. Yeah. <laughs> how did I mean, you, uh, okay, a better question would be, how did you manage to kind of stick two fingers up and just do your own thing anyway? Yeah, well, I don't know if anyone's ever tried to manage it out of me. I think, um, I think a few people have tried to rein it in for sure. But mm. I, I think, you know, if someone is a particular way, I think it's really important that, supportive people around you you know if we're talking about work mm. and jobs that you 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 know you you, you nurture it mm. you know and when i um when i came back to the uk from my uh sojourn around the world i kind of really wanted to sink, sink my teeth into something mm. it took me 18 months to find what that thing was i knew i didn't want it to be in manchester anymore because i'd spent some time there and kind of didn't have great memories of the city and I'd pissed a lot of people off. And so, you know, I didn't really want to be there. Um, and when I found the Kenilworth Hotel, went there, met the guys, and within weeks, they were like, so this is your hotel. <laughs> and I was like, well, you, yeah, kind of, that's uh, just always been part of my process. Like I take ownership of a thing. Like, of course, it's not mine. You know, you own it. I just work for you. But it's always been that kind of way in my head where I've kind of, taking it and people would walk in and say oh you own the place and i say no no I, I i just work here but the way i walk and talk and mm -hmm. you know whatever it kind of like just comes across that way and i think that's just always been my process and it, i think it really started 
you know, like I, without being super cliche, like found myself, kind of realized how little um, I knew and how small, you know, we are as, you know, individuals in this big spinning blue thing we call Earth. As I was traveling, again, like super cliche, but um, I was like this cocky, arrogant, you know, bartender guy, young, thought a lot of himself was careering towards you know, wanting to win awards and be the best I could be. And when I hit this, like, big award, the thing I was, like, careering towards, I realized that it actually meant nothing. And, like, I didn't, you know, people weren't, like, stopping the ship and, hey, you know, I didn't become, like, a celebrity <laughs> overnight or anything. It was, uh, it was like, oh, yeah, actually means nothing. And, of course, you know, the person in front of me on the other side of the bar doesn't give two monkeys either. And so... It's, you know, you're only as good as your last drink. You're only as good as the last person you spoke to kind of thing. I didn't realize that really until that point. And that's when, yeah, decided to kind of, well, run away. That's what it was. And as I kind of traveled around, realized how little I knew and how young I was. And again, how small I was in the universe, as it were. And that kind of was, a, that was like a big hit home. And like I say, I came out to the UK, ate, you know, spent a long time looking for something to sink my teeth into. And that thing was, was the hotel. End up being there for almost seven years, which is you know a long time, I guess, for a young person to be in a be in a job. I like, don't yeah. hear of many people you know spending that amount. So, of time how old are we talking when you start at the Kenilworth? Um, I was late twenties, and I'd already done a few years behind the bar. I've been blessed or cursed with a um, not really sure what you call it. Some people call it eidetic memory. It's not photographic, but you know I have this thirst for knowledge and it goes in and I have the ability to recall it's, it's not anything special to me because it's always been there but uh yeah so I've you know came up with the Kenilworth and the guys really nurtured me you know from like pretty much day one they were like well let's let's kind of leave this guy alone to do what he does you know like hopefully making delicious drinks you know not running the place into the ground you know was, was trying to build a team around me like you know of um like our cocktail fairies as we kind of referred to them at the time like the the team of waitresses and bartenders around us and we kind of you know i think we did really good things there and they 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 nurtured a few other people before me um you know they they chris moore who went on to do uh the Beaufort bar and then coupette was was the bartender who i took over from so i had like a couple of weeks lap over from him <clears throat> before that richard gillam who ended up running like the entire fmb i think for uh a hotel chain out in um, Singapore, Malaysia, a few other countries. You know, they've done great things. And again, obviously, then into the Edge Baston, the, the legacy that that place left and the people we've I've worked with have, you know, now run bars all over the country and all over the world, actually. And that's that's super something they should be super proud of. Yeah, but they, they certainly didn't try and manage that out of me, despite my ending at the Edge Baston being... Uh, Something I'm sure they're not massively proud of, and despite the place closing, I think they should be proud about how they, you know, nurtured not only me but lots of other people. There's a lot of and people have come through the edge bastard. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, a lot of people. Um, and for a place that wasn't there for that long, actually, you know, like before the edge bastard of the Kenilworth, we had some, you know, great guys who, were, like I said, um, managing places all over the country and all over the world. You know, as uh, Tommy said a few weeks ago, you know, like having those sofas all over the world to sleep on, you know, it's <laughs> not a terrible thing to have. But, you know, that, that sense of community that he also mentioned, you know, that, that, that comes from that camaraderie behind the bar. Um, you know, people ask me 
every day like where's your accent from <laughs> apparently i have a weird accent um and i always say well i think it's because i haven't really ever worked in a place or in a position where there's been one accent you know like i worked at a hotel in manchester where i think we had like the whole of the eu like 46 staff and <laughs> it's like 44 nationalities yeah. like that's that's gonna that's gonna leave a mark right <laughs> but no I, I i've always had very supportive people around me from like the early days um back in manchester with jamie stevenson and bo myers and ian morgan then through into my time here in the midlands and then again you know once i left the hotel working with Ammon at fort and paul's Opening that place was, again, kind of eye-opening. It was the first time, really, from scratch, seeing a place opened, uh, you know, on very little money, you know, very little resource. But that was, like, a super eye-opening experience. And he was really transparent about the whole process, which was part of my, kind of, um, my want to do it and part of, like, our agreement to work together that way that he was like, you know, I'm going to show you what I've done so far and let's do everything, you know, ahead together. Um, And then, obviously left there and did my own places and here we are so no i don't think anyone's ever really tried to pull that out of me i don't think they would have gotten very far if they had a try <laughs> no it's very lucky though because i mean i mean most it's i think the type of venues you've worked at i mean we didn't touch on what you did before you went traveling and who you worked for but i feel like when you work for a bigger chain you tend to get put into their system and they want you to work like they were i've literally and, never worked yeah. for a chain ever yeah I worked at Scottish Newcastle as my first bar in the UK, mm. which were, you know, there are a big brewery company, but yeah. I worked um, in a space for like eight or nine months, I think. Maybe it was a year. But for a couple who had uh, worked in like kind of indie restaurants and bars, pubs, really, because like style bars and wine bars were the thing back then. God, I'm so old. Um, so really it was working for them rather than it was working for the brewery. It happened to be that the brewery was there, but they had opened this new space in Manchester that was very, you know, style driven and very like n- the new bar was where everybody wanted to be seen and see other people. It was this big triangular glass building and the menu was very kind of like cutting edge, I guess, at the time, which was, you know, laughable now, but uh, still, still cool then. And then, you know, because of this, brain that I have just constantly bounced around Manchester, like looking for the next biggest bat bar that I could consume <laughs> and the next menu for me to consume and, you know, the next kind of like mentor figure to, to drain of information to then, you know, kind of like move on to the next. And I always had like a felt, I always felt like I had a legitimate reason to move on from a place. Like I've, I've almost like completed this. What year was, what year were we talking then? I hate to put an age on you here, Rob. I know. <laughs> um, that must have been... Oh four, so cocktails. You know, like it's hard yeah. today when Something like that. cocktail bars are cool. And there's like there's awesome bars like this one, especially around London. There's loads of them. But oh four, <laughs> there wasn't even like Alchemist or Barnist or no cocktails no. were like super the living room sweet, was that was, was the place. Yeah, the living room was was like the place. Tim Bacon set up mm. the living room with a couple of guys who were like TGIs and stuff. They were they were the cutting edge. Yeah, TGIs probably was the cocktail know, yeah. place for cocktails you went it was in the place 2004. You knew, was, yeah. yeah, it was TGIs. So it must have been much harder to get the information you were after. Yeah, no compared internet. Compared to how it is now anyway. Yeah, no internet. Yeah. I remember, so Class Magazine was really the only source of information. Class Magazine, Theme Magazine, there was a magazine called Flavor. Now, Theme and Flavor don't exist anymore. Drinks International was, I think, was around at the time. 
but was more like uh, head office kind of information. But class was the only thing at the time. I remember getting them and really like drinking in every tiny bit of information I could find, like really going over them multiple times, seeing if I could like glean every tiny little bit of information. And I kept those copies for years and years and years to go back. Um, and I still do that now. I still keep copies of magazines to kind of, you know, go back and refresh myself because if someone had a good idea, it was a good idea no matter what, right? Like good ideas don't, don't go out of style. And so um, I often go back, I guess, years and years back to old issues of things and reread them to kind of like pick up on things because as much as it's, uh, it's nice having all this information crammed in my head it gets jumbled up sometimes yeah yeah but um yeah it was really difficult to find that's that's why i said you know i bounced around because i was always looking for the next back bar the next mentor the next menu because you weren't able to go online like you can now and you know i would i i wouldn't want to be a kid now coming into this industry you know you're expected to have to know the freezing point of alcohol from liquid nitrogen and know how to work a centrifuge and a rotor evaporator before you even balance a daiquiri like it's insane the the stuff that the kids are getting thrown at now does that make better bartenders or worse 100 percent worse yeah yeah definitely again my opinion but yeah um the kids coming into bartending now there there's no foundation level you know they're they're thrown into the you know you get a bar in get a job in a bar and within three to six months, there'll be something, you know, espumas and foams and freezing this and flavoured ices and crystal clear this. And oh, and fucking washing up punches and, them and fucking smoke. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> smoke clashes over the top of and the drink. Yeah, you know, when I started, it was crushed ice was like a cool thing. And now, <laughs> you know, we don't even use ice. Most chefs we've had on the podcast have said exactly the same thing. Like, yeah. you know, young yeah. chefs come out and they want to get the one packet jets, they want all this yeah. fancy gear, they want firms, they want all of this. But yeah. then you ask them to make a hollandaise sauce and they're struggling, you know, yeah. or to sh- you, you ask them to shell oysters and scallops and they're struggling, they can't do the yeah. fundamentals. Stops and sauces. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's so funny because we, we've kind of gone back that way. Like, you know, as, as, a, as a bartender, we're more culinary led than we are like drinks led really. Yeah. Because everything we do is, is mise en place. Yeah. So the, the the way we differentiate what we do to what most other people do is pre-mixing, pre-batching. We're adding dilution. And it gives us the ability to add other flavors, new flavors, new textures, new sensations, aromatics that you wouldn't ordinarily find because we are able to finish it completely. Whereas if you're pre-mixing all your ingredients to then pour, you know, 90 to 100 mils into a jigger to then stir it or shake it, you're still adding that finishing touch at the end Um, and removing shaking and stirring from our repertoire has kind of like given us another set of tools to play with. And we we talk about stocks a lot because we never just add water to a drink to dilute it, but ice is always just water. And so we, we find that like most interesting. But again, you know, I wouldn't recommend, you know, a noob coming into the industry to come into what we do and start trying to understand it because it's, it's too much it, i mean personally i would say yes you know i would say go and work in a tgi fridays you know for a year you know well first of all go and wash up for a year <laughs> that's what i was gonna say what do you look for if you're hiring a member of staff then do you expect them to be able to just do the classics and then you can teach them stuff from there or i'll be honest for us we we're not really looking for a skill set we're looking for a personality because i can teach you how to make drinks but 
I can't make you be a nice person. You can be a, the best drinks maker in the world and have all the knowledge and, you know, know how to make a casino from 1928. But if you're an asshole, <laughs> it's for naught, right? Yeah. So you're um, just after someone, you're thinking you can teach, basically, that's Yeah, nice. I, yeah we, we prefer clean skins every day of the week. You know, we've got a, a 19-year-old running our entire drinks program at the Wilderness. Wow. She's worked with me for a year, fresh out of UCB, um, had only ever worked in restaurants, and she's switched on. She listens. She, you know, understands the bit she needs to understand and is able to explain to guests why and what we do. But she runs our entire drinks program. Now, yes, it's built by me, but she still executes it day to day and runs it day to day. And I'm not sure if that would be the case having little to no experience otherwise. Yeah, because there's some attitude of, well, I know how to make this and I know this. Maybe yeah, and can... someone walking in saying, well, can I have a, you know, can I have a last word? Yeah. And they're like, I have no idea what that is. Whereas, you know, we, we <laughs> operate our drinks programs like drinks, like food menus. Do you think a lot of that's down to your process of, and how you do your drinks with some of them, well, most of them being pre-batched? Yes. That you couldn't come in with the knowledge of it anyway, because it's what you do is completely different. Yeah, I mean, we're standing on the shoulder of giants, so we are not pioneering per se sure some of the things we do we've you know we've developed ourselves but um we weren't the first to do this and i'm sure we won't be the last but we're certainly kind of carving our own path with it um but absolutely you know if you've got uh, you know <laughs> three months of experience under your belt you're not running a drinks program you know and, and yes if someone walks in and asks for an obscure 1920s classic you can just say oh let me just check out the ingredients walk in the back and google it you know, read the recipe. Mm. You know, Google is fantastic. Do I have all these ingredients? Yes, I do. Great. You walk out. Yeah, I've got everything. Let me make it for you. And if you've never made it before, that, that's fine. But the way we want to do things is, yeah, more like a restaurant. We have a menu. You order from that menu. You know, uh, the example I often kind of help to you to justify it to people is, you know, the wilderness is a restaurant. We have potatoes and a fryer. We have fish, eggs, sparkling water and flour but you can't order fish and chips yeah and people are so used to walking into bars and just ordering whatever they want whether it's a mojito or a margarita or a pasta martini but there's no specialization you know you, we there is such a deficit of skill in our industry because operators open bars without any knowledge or any blind sense of who's going to work there you know we get operators calling me on a monthly basis and really the first question i ask them is have you got a head chef? Have you got a, a bartender or a bar manager? Have you got like a team in place? And, you know, they'll say, oh, we'll, we'll recruit a couple of weeks out. And I'm saying, I don't mean to be that guy, but I'm out. Because that's what happens. You know, you're going to spend £100,000 on opening a bar or a restaurant. And yet the last thing you do is recruit the people who are going to be there. And then you're trying to like indoctrine in your way of thinking, like, you know, they should be there months out. And I understand that's a, that's, that's money. And that's not going to happen. But that's, for me, the problem with the way bars and restaurants are open nowadays. Mm. And won't be a populist view, but uh, quite frankly, I don't care. You know, when, when we opened 40 St. Paul's, Emma and I worked together for three months before we opened. So that our, our viewpoints aligned and we were the people who were going to be there. And so we brought every part of it together. And of course, you know, you, you have that sense of um, venues that are, you know, 40 or 50 people. And of course, that's, you know, you're not going to hire them all and hold them for a month doing trainings and tastings and 
making sure they've got everything they need before they open because that's not feasible. My question would would be, do we need those places? Do we really need, you know, like 100 places that sit 400 covers? Probably not. You know, Manchester has like 100 independent bars and restaurants. And they're all like 30 covers and under, you know, and Birmingham is the is the city of ginormous venues. And we have like maybe five or 10 good bars. We also have five or 10 venues that sit 500 people on a Saturday night. Like, do you really think there's going to be a level of quality there? I'm, I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> mm, no, I see. I'm surprised by the amount, man. Then you go to Manchester, there is a lot, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I love out. Birmingham and I love our independent scene, but when people when people say we have an incredible food and drink scene, it's only if you compare ourselves to ourselves. If you compare the independent scene to Manchester or Leeds or Bristol or Glasgow or even places like Brighton, just do the numbers. You, you, you'd really be surprised. And we do have a really great indie scene. But it's still up and coming, and for every one that opens, one closes. Yeah. You know, and partly that's the, I suppose, the lack of support that we get. You know, you were talking to Joe, you know, I've known Joe for a few years, and he says, you know, there are ways to support indies that don't cost a penny. And that's absolutely true. And there are ways to support that, that does cost you money, but every penny you put into an indie, it's going to someone's pocket, you know, that the social post of every time you spend yeah. a pound at an indie, someone does a dance. That's, that's real. <laughs> mm. I can tell you, having owned or been part of 15 independent venues, I can tell you every single booking, every single penny spent genuinely makes a difference. And yet, you know, the amount of people I'll go to Pizza Express and Franco Manker and stuff like that. Fucking Weatherspoons. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and Weatherspoons is, you know, just that kind of viewpoint of people not giving a shit, really, because through COVID, everybody heard and saw what Tim did to all of the teams at Weatherspoons. And the day lockdown lifted, every Weatherspoons was packed. Not the local pub, but every Weatherspoons was packed to the rafters. Yeah, there's one over the road from us. Yeah. And packed. as soon as it opened, they were queuing down the road yeah. to get in. It's crazy. It's bonkers. The only time I ever spend money in Weatherspoons is if I'm at the airport. Because <laughs> yeah. you literally have no choice. Where else are you going to get a pint at six in the morning? Exactly, yeah. But support independence. So if someone comes here, they support you. Your day off, you go and support other independents. Exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah, Whereas triple down, comments. Tim Martin's not supporting anywhere. No, <laughs> absolutely not, yeah. <laughs> supporting the Bahamas. Yeah, Sorry, exactly, Bahamas. yeah. <laughs> it makes sense. And obviously as well, just on a point of view, that it makes a better high street, you know, instead yeah. of like... 10 of the same you've got mm-hmm. like individual cool shit man like yeah. you know like star shit at the minute it's Absolutely, full of cool yeah. shit you know yeah. it's not just chain after chain oh look yeah. there's a Costas that looks like exactly like the other Costas up the road yeah. and the other Costas that's in town not picking on Costas lot, but you know what I mean <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's the first one that came you can, to my head it's fine <laughs> yeah. it's the first one that came to my head <laughs> just going back a little bit the changeover in staff in them big venues is so vast like I mean who stays there longer than like a year really yeah well I mean Again, it comes down to the, the, the base of should you have opened a place mm. that needs 40 staff, knowing full well that the transitory nature of hospital staff. Yeah. But then also, I think it looks at a bit the fact that people still look down upon the career of bartending or hospitality. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's. Do you that's, have any idea on how we could change that? Or I'm not sure if I have the answers per se. I think people should only do it if they want to do it. You know, a lot of people go into hospitality because they can. Um, you look into Europe, look into the States. You know, there are professional bodies that look after hospitality staff because it's a real career. 
Yeah, um, we couldn't just wander over to America and just jump on a bar. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just have a uni, you need a poor card. And that's the same in a lot of European countries as well. Mm. Um, but, you know, there are also lots of hotelier schools and hospitality schools in Europe. And we don't really have that here. We do. We have a couple of them, like, popping up in the last maybe, like, maybe 10 years. But, you know, 10 years in, you know, the last yeah. couple of hundred. Yeah. It's really not... Uh, what it should be but because if anyone's you know even like down on their luck they can just walk into a pub into a restaurant and say you know i'm willing to wash dishes or you know collect glasses or empty the bins whatever it will be you know that's so it's a great industry for that you can find a place for yourself very easily and i've seen people who are hardworking, who are dedicated and diligent go from literally collecting glasses to a general manager in under five years it can be done, yeah. but you have to put the work in. And as we're also very aware, it's very hard. And I don't blame parents for not wanting this for their kids, but there has to be a change at some point. And it's one of the things we're trying to kind of make a difference with is the sense that the chefs nowadays are trying to go to like four days, three days, you know, trying to have a work-life balance. That's really important, but that's not my world. But I've been making drinks now for coming up to 20 years and my body is a mess. My shoulders, my elbows, you know, my hands. Um, had a trip to A&E a couple of weeks ago. It was a bit of a, a shocker, like, like a, oh, am I having a stroke or something kind of job and... You know, like, again, just before we start, you know, my head starts spinning. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. what is going on? Um, and those things... Stress or... Yeah, yeah. Who knows? But, you know, everything that I've done for 20 years is pretty much designed to ruin my body. Really, really good friends with uh, one of the best chiropractors in the country. They deal with all the Olympic athletes, all the, all the talent from WWE when they come to the country. They work with, like, some of the best and brightest people in the whole of the UK and actually around Europe as well. And the conversations we've had, you know, like just little things like every time a drink is made, ice comes out of an ice well. And those are cubes of ice that are solid, pretty much solid. And they're poured into a box of metal that is also square or rectangular. And then you take a square edged ice scoop. If you're lucky, it's a round edged ice scoop. And you're literally ramming your arm into a box of cubes to then scoop ice, you know, to like chest height from waist height into a glass, into a shaker, whatever it may be. And that action alone, you know, if not hundreds of thousands, millions of times, it just, it takes a toll. You know, you're reaching for things by your ankles. You're reaching for things way above your head. You're carrying barrels and massive trugs of ice and boxes and boxes of beer and liquor and, you know, glasses and everything else and you're doing thousands and thousands of steps a day whilst doing all of those things and it really takes a toll definitely and you're doing you know 80 hour weeks and those kind of like those that that badge of honor oh i did like 90 hours this week that you know that needs to get in the sea yeah if you've done 45 hours you're a part-timer absolutely <laughs> yeah 100 yeah, percent. what a horrific yeah. way of looking at things you know like we, we get referred to as a senior team at the wilderness now and when i'll literally limited our hours to 46. And I was like, what, what am I going to do with the rest of my week? <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, like I, what, I have like evenings at home. Yikes. Yeah. So it's, it's like, is this being an adult? You know, like, have I finally grown up and I'm not working every night 
you know. And then the light nights, the sleep patterns. Yeah. The, I mean, there's loads of research coming out now about how bad it is when your sleep's affected or if you don't get enough sleep or if you work nights. People who do night shifts are like, well, I, I can't remember what the stats were. Like, it takes years off your life. I'd, yeah. We had it at work because I used to do nights on the railway yeah. and we'd have studies and they'd come in and say they had to stop you doing it like, because it was in time between days and nights. Yeah. Eventually they were like, we want you to just do the nights or just do the days because yeah. it's, you know, it's second years off your life. Yeah. I remember doing like back-to-back shifts, you know, finishing at two in the morning and being in at 10 the next morning. Oh, yeah, I remember. You know, you've got to get home, sleep, wake up, have breakfast, get back to work in that, you know, few short hours. That's mad. Um, that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's nuts. But, you know, we are trying to do a little bit to change that, you know, Amy... The girl who runs our drinks program at the Wilderness, mm. as I said, she's 19, she runs our entire drinks program. Her first, like, cocktail bar job, obviously we're not a cocktail bar, we're a restaurant, but we have a cocktail program that's pretty expansive, and she still finds shaking fun. She's probably shaken less than 100 cocktails in her life, you know, like we have one shaking drink, or we had one shaking drink on the menu, because it really needed to be shaken, but she still, she still really enjoys it, oh, she was like, that drink would come on like a check would come on and she'd be like oh yes I get to shake something <laughs> you know and, and if she can get to my age and stay in this industry and not have her body ruined because we don't have an ice machine at the wilderness we don't have shaken and stirred drinks all those things of like her lugging around case and case of beer and barrels and all that kind of stuff she doesn't do any of that those things aren't thought about things like ice wells when I when I point this out to people they're like oh crazy I think I don't yes. know if you noticed how much I was smiling when you were describing that because I do I remember like vividly like and it I worked in the cocktail bar and it was like no little sliding fridge things and yes. and you have to reach down to the bar. Yeah. So your head was nearly inside the yes. ice thing, grabbing out the eye. And it's harder than you think. By yeah. the end of a shift, your arm was so tired from like digging out the ice. And honestly, when you've got those kind of like those ice wells that are really deep and then you've got a bar that is quite deep and then you've mm-hmm. got a double speed rail on front of the ice well and you literally spend your entire <laughs> evening at like from the waist at about 45 degrees. Yeah, because I'm short You're literally as well. Pivoted. You can't see how short I am. I'm like five foot eight, five foot nine. So I was yeah. literally on my tiptoes, reaching across all the time. Yeah. Now, is this why you've got rid of ice? <laughs> yeah. No ice here. Yeah. Well, you know, when we, we the, the the first instance of that was was at Fort St. Paul's, we built the ice well into the into the bar top. So we didn't, we wanted our fridges not so we could walk in and look in the fridge and say, I want, you know, a bottle of Corona because we didn't sell that. But that was like the one of those first things that we want to take that away from you. Because it's the first thing people do. They walk into a bar and they, they look behind the bar. And then all you see is glassware. So the fridge was to us because then I don't have to turn around and crouch down. I can just tilt the, the door back and pick something out. So that's better for me. Again, like it's over and good having the fridges face the, the customer, the guest, so they can place their order. But if that's not best for me... Mm-hmm. I'm the one who's here 10 hours a day. Customers here, maybe maybe 15 minutes, maybe an hour. And every time I speak to an operator or someone about kind of how and why bars do what they do, I don't understand why bartenders aren't spoken to about designing bars. Yeah. For example, Tommy and I had zero conversations around the design of our bars. And yet there are pretty strong similarities, despite the fact that we did not discuss anything about what we were doing. No, it's very similar when you actually look at it. And when you look at all of the bars that are designed by Barthens, you now see the changes that should have been made, you know, all those years ago when bar designers 
we're designing bars terribly. And arguably, the, uh, you know, it's one of those things where someone finds a way that something works and they go, let's just leave it like that. And no one ever questions it. And, you know, Kendra calls me the why guy because every single thing we do has to come with a why. If there is no why, then we do not do it. Oh, I think I said to you before about Simon Sinek when I was oh, here. Oh, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But the yeah. Honda as well and the um, seven whys. Yeah, the, you, you know, that, the golden circle is so, so important. If, you know, more people took on board people like Simon Sinek's words, mm. there would be there would be more people doing less in-the-box stuff. Mm-hmm. And when we point out to people who are, you know, talking to us in the, in the space, you know, we point out we don't have a back bar. We don't have ice wells. We don't have speed rails. We don't have an ice machine. We don't shake. We don't stir. No one's going to elbow you in the back trying to get your seat. There's no liquor written on the menu. Then people start noticing all those things like, oh, mm. like, yikes. Because they walk in, they see, you know, this beautiful space we have now. And they're not focusing on those things, which is brilliant because you shouldn't notice any of those things. You should just sit down, be comfortable, get taken care of, order a drink, not realize we've taken something away that you thought was imperative that really isn't. It's too much of, why is that like that? Oh, because it's always been like that. Exactly. Is there anything more infuriating than that answer? A hundred percent. It's always been like, like that. These old bars, yeah. they were designed for pulling pints yeah. and putting yeah. them straight to someone. There you go, there's your pint. Mm-hmm. That's not taking into account cocktails and this yeah. and that and all the other stuff that's gone yeah. on. They're like the steps, the spirit steps at the back, the back bar <laughs> spirit steps. Mm-hmm. And they were too high for some people to reach. And they were like, can you reach that for? It's like, how impractical. Just make like. sure you do the rotor so there's someone tall on. I remember having those conversations. <laughs> it's mental though yeah, now when you think is. about it. But it sounds obvious now you talk about it. You're but like, you oh, know, yeah. this is one of the things that I, I found really interesting that's not interesting at all, but I have a weird brain. I wanted to know why that was. Mm-hmm. And so I went back as far as I could to try and find the reason as to why those things existed. And of all the reasons cocktail bars being the way they are now, you would not expect the answer to be, <laughs> wait for it, Adolf Hitler. <laughs> Which, you know, that the, the, the whole, uh, you know, internet thing, if you, if you, if you comment, 50 times eventually someone will mention Hitler. But World War II is actually the real reason. You know, so many people were drafted. And if you were an unskilled worker, you got drafted. And a lot of those people didn't come home. And those people were cellarmen and hotel bartenders. And if you, you know, even if you worked at a brewery or a a distillery, you know, the war effort took precedent. And so those places were, you know, like stills were broken down to use for ammunition. And, you know, um, breweries and distilleries were all, you know, taken apart. Anything made of metal was was pulled apart and made into bullets and ammunition. And the people who fired those guns, you know, a lot of them didn't come home. You know, people forget that rationing went into the 60s. And that's not a long time ago. My mum was born in 1960. So she doesn't remember rationing because she was like three or four years old when it finished. But my nan remembers it and she's still alive. And when I speak to her about like pubs and bars, she's seen you know, the style bars and, you know, coming out of the war, you know, because we were the front line. And so everything was affected. 
you know, kids were sent off to the countryside and all that kind of stuff. People were drafted into the into the war. Mm-hmm. And if those people don't come home, then what happens after the war? You know, you come to the 60s because, of course, the, the war didn't end in the 60s, but the effects of the war didn't really wear off until the early 60s. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, you've got, like, barmaids tending bar where, you know, it probably would have been men later on, uh, sorry, earlier on. And the the youngsters and the people that then went took those jobs didn't have the old timer to say that's not how a martini is made. A martini shouldn't be blue or green or have that <laughs> sugar in it, right? And then all of a sudden you go through this period of like everything being boiled and food being really drab and being you know rationed things like sugar. And then all of a sudden someone comes along with like blue curacao and midori and like things are like tastes like pineapple juice and you're like holy shit like this is awesome this thing's got a banana in it i haven't seen a banana ever like my nan told me the story when she like when she was a kid she didn't know bananas they didn't exist you know that's crazy like nowadays you think about that like a banana is the thing that you eat every day Mm -hmm. right like it's so pervasive Mm -hmm. and my mum doesn't remember seeing bananas until she was like 15 or 16 that's crazy. That's like the like mid seventies. <laughs> yeah. That I thought that was really interesting. That those old timers they weren't there to say no. And you know you might have the one or two old timers in the really expensive hotel bars who maybe didn't get drafted or you know like spent twenty years going through. But even you know even like the even the American bar at the Savoy served blue drinks. You know when they probably shouldn't have. You know I know people love blue drinks, but sweet sugar exotic fruits, you know, things being multicolored and disco, there was very little to fight against that. And so it was pervasive. And then you come out of that and, you know, you have the yuppie era of the 80s and everybody wants the the biggest, the best, you know, spend all this money and you have another crash, you know, and over and over it goes. When I kind of realized that, like, whoa, that's, that's kind of crazy that we still have the bar designs now that we have from, you know, the early 70s or the late 60s because there was no one pushing the boundaries because those people, it was almost like we had a reset and arguably probably everything did. Yeah. But for me, that's that's the reason we are in the place we are now. And, you know, that's a huge amount of time ago. And still only now these things are happening. And, of course, there have been people who have been doing things along this message for a while. You know, I'm not saying I'm a pioneer. There are people who have been doing this you know, long before for I, but um, I thought it was really interesting that I, that I, you know, kind of sat on this journey to find out why is this the case. And when I kind of hit that point, I was like, yikes, you know, like going through two world wars, that's that's going to decimate, you know, the working class and the working class of the people who worked in the pubs and the bars. And, you know, as bars became not pubs and became wine bars and style bars, they became new and the design just stayed the same. It's crazy. In an old interview, you said that um, bartending was the best job in the world. And after everything we just spoke, do you still believe that to be true? I do. You do? Yeah, I would still say that, yeah. Every single day is different, no matter what. Every single day, (laughs) something new will present itself as a new challenge or, you know, that's something breaking or something going (laughs) right, something going wrong, you know, different people walking through the door. It's always different. And I think that's amazing. I think it's probably why I've done it for as long as I have. You know, I've I've never really faltered a couple of times. I've I've had wobbles where I've gone, you know, I think this is it. I'm done. But I've stuck at it because I can't think of another thing 
that would give me the variety on a daily basis. You get to speak to people and be creative. You've got that creative output if you're that kind of person. You know, I think those people do find ways to be that person, I guess. Um, but no, I, I, I would stick by that. I would say it's still probably the best job in the world. Not the best paid job in the world. <laughs> Pretty rough hours and all that kind of stuff. But personally, I think it's still the best job in the still world. the yeah. best job. I mean, I've traveled the world for free. Uh, you know, I have friends all over the world. Well, yeah acquaintances <laughs> I hope I call them friends all over the world I can do the thing I do anywhere regardless of language or location uh, and, and I have and that that's pretty cool you know there are not many things that you can do anywhere nah. there are there are a few but there, a few. There, there's not many nah. um, and even down to like legislation it's only a case of like a, a quick recap like having when I worked in Scandinavia and they were like oh you can't put more than four CLs of alcohol in a drink and i'm like what <laughs> okay uh well this is different you know <laughs> is that true yeah yeah because they have monopolies on alcohol they're very strict about what you can and can't do and yeah in sweden you can't put more than 40 mls 4 cls of of alcohol in any way into a drink so whether that's like 25 mils of liquor and then you know your liqueurs and your bitters and stuff yeah it all has to be put into that little category whereas in the uk if you if you don't put 40 mls in a drink it's mm, gonna be known in your bar well you're, you're probably not gonna be very popular yeah um so that's you know but that's just a that's just a you know you have to learn those little rules and, and off you go you know wow. whether it's fluid ounces or mls or cls or you know what's the local hooch and what do people drink you know that kind of thing i bet it's a good way of getting to know like different cultures and stuff though isn't it like, massively i mean yeah. I, one of the things i found so fascinating about this job is the fact that it gives me no end of inspiration our new exhibition here so we're finishing our current exhibition terroir in two weeks so this this one will run until the 12th next one starts on the 17th it's called winter solstice and it's a celebration of flavors and winter traditions from cultures all over the world and so you know i spend weeks looking at what other people do in winter and then finding flavors and how to manifest those things and how to present them to guests and stuff uh, super interesting um, when you say what other people do do you mean like drinks wise food wise or just everything yeah this time of year we we focus on christmas but a lot of the world do celebrate christmas but a lot of the world don't celebrate christmas um so you know we've kind of said to ourselves this is not a christmas menu our menu is is not a christmas menu you know we've done cool stuff like we've uh, we've taken this building and turn it into a Christmas card. It's stunning. Because we are in the UK. Yeah. You see it today? Yes, yeah, it's nice. a little sneak peek out. And uh, we've the, the archway behind you there. The, there isn't a fire in it, but we've, we've done another one where it's me sat on a chair with a fire in this archway and a wreath. Um, and like, you know, it's the idea of, you know, it's one of, yeah. these, one of these chairs. Um, oh. So it's like all the little like touches from, yeah. from the space. Um, so like, those elements are Christmas. And of course, for those parts of the world that do celebrate Christmas, we kind of touch upon that, you know. Um, even if, you know, they don't do the things that we do. We, we touch on some of that, but, you know, some some cultures around the world, they don't have a, a concept of Christmas and they, they don't have any, you know, celebrations like we do. They don't mark the 25th of December or the 31st of December or anything like that. And so, you know, for us, it was not necessarily a sense of inclusivity, but 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 kind of, you know, let's let's show... What everybody does, not everybody, but you know, let's let's throw the the the, the doors open and, and see what else is out there because you know it can be pretty monotonous if you're just working with spices and the same fruits 
you know, year in. Yeah, here's a mince pie cocktail. Yeah, exactly. Some more wine. Yes, yeah. exactly. You haven't got these two things on, have you? <laughs> no. We, we, <laughs> might, we might float with those yeah. two things, but certainly not in the way yeah. I think you might have. Oh, I'd imagine if you have, it's some crazy concoction <laughs> of just deliciousness. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> Is it Japan or Korea where they have um, KFC? Japan, they have KFC. KFC. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love Watch that. this space for that one. Bonehead. You yeah. and Bonehead. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We have, that's uh, cool, we, have that's. we have something coming that's pretty cool um, for that particular tradition. We have a drink on the menu called Kentucky for Christmas, which is the, the the slogan for KFC in Japan. So we're mm. taking two different Japanese whiskeys. We're fat washing one with chicken schmaltz, oh, so rendered chicken fat, um, yeah. and one with replicated KFC spices. And then we're basically serving it as an old fashioned with in and the glass is kind of like this shaped and so we've got a sticker going on the glass so it looks like you're drinking out of a miniature kfc bucket and then we've got like a savory stock that kind of uh, dilutes it and it's as close to having kfc in a liquid form as you'll probably ever get i was somewhat bothered by a post i saw recently where there's another bar in birmingham who uh, who have also done something with KFC Japan and Christmas, um, but luckily they're they're just serving actual KFC with 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 drinks. Um, when I saw the post, I was like, "Oh my god, I cannot believe someone else has done this!" Like uh, within a couple of weeks, I was wanting to <laughs> to announce it because we were going to announce it like within a couple of days, and they put it out, and I was like, "Damn it!" Mm. But uh, but no, it's it doesn't affect what we're going to do. Yes, they have Christmas in Japan, but mm-hmm. they certainly don't celebrate it the way we do. Yeah. China, Mexico, Brazil the middle east like these are all things that we're kind of exploring but they're not the way you might think because yeah. you know if you don't have the idea of snow and a santa and <laughs> yeah. that kind of stuff like, doesn't mean that you know that's why we've called the exhibition winter solstice because it's not a christmas menu it is a celebration of winter and people throughout time and all over the globe have observed the earth tilting on its axis days getting yeah shorter nights getting longer you know and from like the mayan calendar through to now that has been celebrated in some form you know not with a coca-cola red yeah. <laughs> suit with fur trim yeah but in some other way and so we're 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 exploring those facets rather than the traditional ones with with some traditional stuff you know kind of thrown in for for the people who want to oh man, I've got to come back. I've got to have that chicken drink, man. Yeah, <laughs> that nuts. It's absolutely nuts. I've got to touch on eighteen eighty one because yeah, it's kind of how I got to know you anyway. And yeah, it's first Carl place. Got to know you. I think I I remember coming to the Edge Bastard when it first opened, so I must have crossed paths with you there. But eighteen eighty one, I always wanted to go to the place before eighteen eighty one. I can never say the name of Small it. Small Tower, yeah. That stood out. That was the first time I'd seen a cocktail taster menu, and I was like, that's mad. I've never heard of that. Yeah, well, cocktail tasting menus are not a thing, really. Mm-hmm. Um, when we opened Smoltron Stella, again, we're standing on the shoulder of giants. We were one of only two bars in the entire world that offered cocktail tasting menus as a sole offering. So it was just us and a place called uh, Bar Genyamamoto in the Roppongi Hills in Tokyo. But was a very different offering. But actually, we, we'd taken a lot of inspiration from them, but also kind of like done it our own way. But arguably, the... The progenitor of it all is a gentleman called Luke Wearty. Uh, he owns a bar in Melbourne now called Birdie. But um, he was working at a place called De Rome in Melbourne um, that I visited in 08. And um, it was 
easily the most progressive bar in the world at the time, I, w- I'm, I would say, along with probably Taylor in New York. And um, he was working with or for uh, this guy called Matt Bax, who was more of like an artist than he was a bartender, but I happened to make drinks. And what they were doing was absolutely insane. They were really pushing every boundary that there, there was. And it was the first time I'd ever come across the idea of cocktails in a multi-course format. And I was like blown away by it. I didn't have it, but I was like, I was so enthralled with this idea. Between then and now, you know, the way I kind of justify it, if you will, is I've seen people order a cheese board and then have a Brad Alexander alongside of it and then be like, oh, I might have a glass of champagne before I go home. And I'm like, when you wake up in the morning with a belly full of junk, you're going to blame me. But I had no say over what you ordered. <laughs> I just did what you asked me to do. And so... The idea of curating people's experience and the fact that a cocktail menu is very rarely separated into like sweet drinks, sour drinks, dry drinks, you know, full body drinks, savory drinks, whatever. Not never, just rarely. Kind of like puzzled me. And then of course, you know, food pretty much forever has been put into courses, whether or not a multi-course format, but like starters, mains and desserts, whether it's, you know, pesky carny, uh, prima secundi whatever or, or any other languages version of it that there's always that sense of you know it goes first it goes second it goes last or, what, or whatnot and yeah if you go to a restaurant and you try and order cheesecake followed by soup and then you finish with it with a steak they'll fight you on it but you know <laughs> built on that premise of you know the customer's always right which is you know nonsense they'll eventually give in because everyone always does personally i think the word no is very powerful but that sense of being able to curate people's experience was something that then I'd kind of like immediately wanted to uh, fall into. And when everyone else was doing, you know, molecular mixology, you know, the, the drinks version of molecular gastronomy, albeit playing with it a few years later, I was I was so hell-bent on this idea of curating your experience. And when I was at the Kenilworth Hotel, we played with it, but it was, was you know, too early, too ahead of its time, whatever. But, um, you know, we were coming out of recession at the time and the last thing people wanted to do was, you know, spend £30 up front for four cocktails, despite that being an absolute bargain. You know, the idea of almost like ordering something for £30 was definitely not going to sway when you could order a, you know, £7.50 cocktail or whatever. And then so as soon as I could do it, I did it. And then when we are at the, the Edge Baston, I then got to play with food in terms that Ryan had, come in and he'd built a tasting menu because he was a young up-and-coming chef and he really wanted to do a tasting menu and so we did the pairings alongside it and that was really my kind of like first instance I suppose to like pairing drinks to food and then uh, the very first time I ever did it was at Forty St Paul's we did um, a Valentine's event where it was the journey of the Orient Express um, and I hassled Haman for weeks and weeks. And he was like, it'll never work, it'll never work. And I was like, just trust me on this. Uh, and we sold out like three days. It was it was awesome. And the idea was we we did, you know, two or three drinks that were available f- to represent London, Paris, Innsbruck, and, and Venice. With a journey, I, I was lucky enough to go on the Orient Express a few years ago. And um, people loved it. It was it was was awesome. It was everything I wanted it to be, and that was I was made like right, okay, that that's it. And then I started to go down this road, and I was trying to convince him that I wanted to open Forty St Pauls on like a Monday or a Sunday, and like host people in this kind of um, 
like tasting menu way, but he was having none of it. And then uh, eventually I, I left and I opened Smoltron Style. And so, you know, we opened and we were like, well, if we're going to do this, we, we, we have to not really give people a choice. And so we did this kind of really probably looking back crazy thing where, you know, we, we, we took over this four by four meter room underneath, you know, a bar that isn't known for cocktails. And it's in fact, you know, a beer bar. And, um, sorry, where was it? Underneath Tilt. Tilt? Yeah, oh. it was underneath Tilt, so... Um, yeah, not not the kind of place you would you would head for anything other than beer and pinball, or or great coffee. And um, we you know we built this space that was laid out a little bit like Ginyamoto uh, in Tokyo because that was the the main inspiration for it. But you know it wasn't anything like what they were doing. Yeah, we offered four course and seven course of the same menu or a five course menu. That was it. Was that surprising to you that it took off like that? Because I'm sure there was loads of people saying you were absolutely nuts. There's yeah. no way people are going to do that. <laughs> well, you know, opening a bar with no sign that no one knew was there, you know, a name that no one could say in a part of the world where no one goes for cocktails was probably a, a bold move. But we, we hung our hats <laughs> on the offering and basically said to ourselves, you know, it, we're going to do it no matter what. Plowed my life savings into that space with, with, with help of uh, a mentor. And, um, you know, we, we believed in it. And uh, I remember we, we, uh, we spoke to Joe Shupler uh, about, like, promoting the space. And we kind of, we, we, we had this little interview with him. And then he wrote this article. And then we did this, like, CIA-style redaction. Like, can't say that, can't say that, can't say that. And so the article kind of said, so there's this guy who <laughs> used to work at the Edge Baston. He's called Robert, and, uh, you know, he, he makes nice drinks. Um, and he's opened this place called Smotron Stella that's only doing tasting menus, and you should definitely book. That was it. <laughs> not where it was, not what we were doing, anything at all. And he was like, this is going <laughs> to land hard. Uh, he put the article out, and we did, like, we got like 100 emails off this one email, which is the power of Independent Birmingham. Mm. And we converted that into a lot of bookings. And then the day before we officially opened, Tom Cullen did uh, like three photos and an article basically like touching on what we're doing. But like, again, pretty uh, bare bones in terms of what we what we actually wanted him to say. Because I really like the, the element of surprise and revealing things to people at that moment and we got another 250 emails and so we converted that into about 400 bookings uh, like people uh, and so actually our instagram account and our twitter account just lay essentially dormant for like two months because we were like well what's the point in telling people oh we have this incredible space and we're doing this really cool thing if you can't you know, book <laughs> right like it's like look what you could have won and so people came down, they didn't really know what to expect, which is, you know, a lot like here. They walked into this space, you know, we didn't tell anyone where it was. You got a text message on the morning of your booking. They give you like a riddle. It was like Head City Arcade. If you can if you can hear the ding ding of a pinball machine or smell coffee beans, you're in the right place. Uh, like follow your nose, I think it said. And then it said, <laughs> you know, walk up to the bar and tell the guys you're not there for beer or pinball. Because it was the two things they did in the evening when we were open. And so people would like walk up to the bar and they're like, I'm not here for beer or pinball. <laughs> um, and at first people were like, hmm, what the hell are you doing here then? <laughs> but then, you know, people caught on because, you know, people were going to this bar that was, you know, maybe like, I think people thought it was a bit fancy, which it kind of wasn't and kind of was, I suppose. But they were coming for a tasting menu, which people know is kind of fancy. Mm-hmm. 
And so people stood up like a, a sore thumb, like they really stood out because, you know, if you've been to Tilt, you know, it's, uh, you know. <laughs> it's cool, it's just chill. Yeah, yeah. punk rocker t-shirts and, yeah. and you know, slamming pizza beer. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, it's, I mean, it's awesome. I literally love the place. Uh, it's a special place in my heart. But yeah, and so people would walk up to the bar and they would say, you know, they were not there for beer or pinball and the guys would then lead them down the stairs <laughs> past a row of pinballs and like unlock an unmarked door and say, you know, have a nice evening. <laughs> and they would walk down these two steps and then kind of like see me stood behind the bar being like, hey guys, how you doing? And people were just like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and we had this massive mural on the wall of a, like a forest skate because we didn't want people to feel like, you know, kind of claustrophobic. It was only a four by four meter room. And they sat on these big comfy chairs and, you know, it was, it was like being sat at a sushi counter. This is what a lot of people said, you know, it's not my words, it's their words. We only left there. We only stopped Small Trans Stella because um, the, the building basically rejected us. We sat to have, um, well, we had a, a water feature in the corner that we did not install. <laughs> uh, you know, it's an old Victorian building and eventually water founders were at the bottom. We were at the very bottom point of the building. So oh. when the water started coming through, you know, water will out. So eventually we had to, we had to, we had to leave that space. And 18th one was the, was the, the evolution of that space. You know, we, we'd, we'd, we'd done this thing for two years and it's like, you know, it's, the grass is always greener, you know, working in a bar where it's, what I now refer to as a la carte drinks. People walk in, they order a drink, whatever. I really wanted to do tasting menus. Then I'd done t nothing but tasting menus for two years. And I really wanted to serve people like a la carte drinks and change the, the drinks all the time and like keep up to date with some stuff and like release some of these kind of creative ideas that I'd had in my head, but had nowhere to put them outside of like, you know, uh, clients. So 1881 kept the tasting menus in various forms throughout its, its, its two-year uh, run um, but then we had this kind of idea of the menu is going to change like really frequently and so we opened with a, a menu called sugarcane which was based on rum and that existed for four months and then we went on to another menu so again like again atelier becomes the evolution of 1881 really how did you even come across that venue oh for um, anyone who doesn't know it was, it was in a friggin car park really wasn't it yeah well it was the so old meat shack, meat shack yeah so someone told us that meat shack had moved downstairs and um, i went and had a burger at meat shack i'd been to meat shack a couple of times when they were in the the upstairs space mm. that was eventually into one and we went in and i was like oh what's happened to upstairs and he said oh you know we moved downstairs the, the bar down here closed and and so that space is available. And I think I'd met Paul a couple of times. We were looking for a space because we had this, you know, waterfall <laughs> in our bar that we weren't <laughs> um, weren't planning on having. And um, we weren't necessarily looking for commercial space because we didn't have a commercial space. We had a sublet, right? Mm -hmm. Like we, we, we had a, a room in an existing bar. And so we didn't really know what to do about it. But then when the when the offer presented itself, he said, you know, come have a look at it. And so we, we had been in the space before, but obviously spaces are very different when you see them with yeah, furniture and out furniture and stuff. And so we, we went into what was the old meat shack space. And I was like, wow, like it's such a massive space. It's not, but you know, it seemed like it from, from coming from, yeah. from, yeah, from our four by four meter room. Um, and we were like, okay, like how do we go about this? So we had a couple of conversations. It was all very, very informal, but you know, Paul and Kat are, you know, they're street food. So, you know, you make do with what you've got and we can add that same kind of ideology. So we packed everything down and we moved it over and we made do with what we'd got, you know. So we opened it with Ikea furniture and uh, just did what we could. But in the two years we're open, we got the highest place on top 50 um, that Birmingham had ever gotten. And we put out a bulk and, and uh, yeah, we got, uh, you know, some, some nice acclaim. It was kind of weird being in New York and, people having 
heard of 1801 and being in Singapore and being in Dubai and people having heard of this bar and we're like, wow, it's really weird. It was Um, fantastic. It deserved everything. Because I think I went about three or four times. That's very kind of you. It was. was, We we, we loved it. You know, we we, we closed because our intention was to to emigrate to Singapore. Um, Obviously, Boris and COVID quashed that idea. But the the semblance was, you know, Kindra and I, Love that space so much. You know, we loved 18 to 1. Probably more than Smotron Star, I think. Smotron Star was more my space. You know, it was usually, it was just me there and then she would come and, but it, she always said it was my space. But 18 to 1 was ours. Uh, and that was really, really important. Um, you know, and Kendra is so awesome at what she does. You know, like she, like she walks in, like the room lights up and the way she like holds a room and looks after people the way she remembers people and their orders and what they wore and, you know, their dog's name and their pet's <laughs> name. And like, uh, yeah, you know, she is, she's incredible. And I really don't know anyone else I've ever worked with who does what she does in the way she does it. Yeah. And so like working with her has always been that kind of like that big shining light. And so that was what we did. You know, it was, it was nice drinks in a nice place for nice people. We drummed on about uh, fast friend and delicious you know, we did a lot of pre-batch there. We did shake some drinks, but we did a lot of pre-batching. And we had the, the quote above the, the bar, we live in the future you're about to occupy, which we turned to a poster in uh, in lockdown. when we Was said that a quote you came up with? Or? No, it's, it's actually, weirdly, the, the quote Kindra found from the head of content for Netflix, which makes sense. Yeah. But actually, yeah. you know, it should be the... It should be the the strap line for hospitality. You know, every yeah. chef, every you know, we we spend seven or eight hours a day here before anyone ever arrives. Mm. So the idea is we literally live in the future you're about to occupy. You know, we're building. You know, here we call them exhibitions, but eighteen to one. You know, we change the menu every three or four months. Here we change our exhibitions. You know, on a whim. This one's going to be eight weeks when it finishes. Wind solstice will only be five weeks the one after that will only be two days of an exhibition the one after that we think is going to be 10 weeks yeah so we're always working in the future you know like bars and restaurants you know like so many other industries it's not just limited to us but you know obviously netflix you know they're they're constantly working on the future most restaurants get um requests for christmas bookings in august from corporates yeah so you are literally working in the future mm. and you're planning menus and working out costings and always trying to work out what's next you know whether it's Wimbledon or Oscar season or WrestleMania or, you know, it doesn't matter what kind of venue you, whether you're working at a dive bar or, you know, the, 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 you know, you like Meat Shack, they would literally live and die by the O2, yeah. uh, the Academy, is it? Like just over the, just over yeah, the, yeah, the Bristol yeah. uh, road. They knew for a fact that if there was like a big gig on, that they would be rammed. That, and, and so that became our, like our thing, but more because... We're always working on the next menu because when we're serving this menu, it's, it's it's a finished article and we just are serving it to you then, just like a, you know, like a restaurant. They have a menu and they're serving it. They're, they're developing the next menu, not this one. It's a double thing because obviously when you know the history of Netflix, so it obviously mm. appeared when everyone was using Blockbuster. Yes. Everyone would have laughed. And for them to turn around and say, oh, well, we're not, we're not worried that you're laughing at us now because in the future we be, will be the one. And in the same sense, when you're talking about doing drinks, tasting menus and stuff like everyone's probably sneering and turning their nose up and saying that will never work. But here we are now. This is stunning, isn't it? Like what we're in now. And it's a good quote for you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, we, 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 you know, we stand by it and, you know, we'll continue to like have that as an, as an internal thing for, you know, for, I think for a long time to come, I don't think it's quite tattoo worthy, but, um, 
but yeah, it's certainly something we we hang our hat on. But yeah, you know, it's 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 always there in the background, you know, working a, working its way, you know, what's next. Aaron twenty in finally getting around to the where we're recording this podcast today. <laughs> yeah, the actual bar. And room. the reason that we're doing this. Before um, we go to that, I've got to ask because there's a theme occurring. Your first place was hard to find. Eighteen eighty one was very hard to find, mm. and even this place, to a certain extent, isn't the easiest place to see. Well, you know what? I love I love that kind of that mirror because yes, Mortal Style was was impossible to find. Eighteen eighty one was was you know was hard to find. You know, we gave you some clues. What I love about Atelier is that. It is, you know, if you strain your eyes, you can see the main road. You know, it's it's right there. Yeah. And so I love the fact that we're just off the beaten track enough, but, you know, we are slap bang in the middle of the JQ. You know, like the canal is right there. There is a massive square. There is an apartment block with hundreds of people living in it. There's a co-op. There's a pub, you know, and the, the main road is right there. We are in the middle of it and yet still kind of like hidden away. Hidden, yeah. Is that, and, you know, we is don't that something have like you a, look for? It, I mean, I found the parallels in the two years we've been trying to get this place open. But it wasn't something that we looked at at the time, you know, when I, you know, the wilderness is, was hard to find when it was on Dudley Street. And it's still a little bit hard to find now, you know, people still call us and they're like, I'm stood outside and of a, of a jeweler's. And we're like, well, you gotta be a bit more specific. But, uh, but yeah, they're stood right outside, but they're not expecting to walk down like a, a bit of a dingy alleyway to get to one of the best restaurants in the country. I can say that now, right? <laughs> After last week. But um, personally, I never wanted to be in a place where people walked past and went, hey, look, a bar, you know, because then you get everybody. And, and I don't mean that in, in, in the way maybe it sounds, but, you know, we are very specific in what we offer. And so we want specific people. Quite frankly, if you want a pint, there's a pub on the corner. You know, if you want to play pool and be loud and do shots of Jaeger, awesome. Like there, there is absolutely a time and a place for that. It's just not here. And we designed this place during COVID to give people loads of space um, because it was mandated. But then when we came to those things dropping away, we were like, no, let's let's keep those elements in place. You know, not for social distancing, but so people have got enough space to feel luxurious. And, you know, you don't go to a five-star hotel and get crammed into a space. And we don't have those in Birmingham. So we were like, well, let's make a luxury space. You know, let's let's have it so you've got more than enough space, not an adequate amount. And let's make it feel luxury, even if, you know, what we're doing is just serving cocktails. You know, you can come here in shorts and t-shirt and a baseball cap. You can come here in sandals and a wife beater. You might feel out of place because someone sat next to you might be wearing, you know, a three-piece suit and a, a ball gown. We have beer, we have wine, we're a bar. We just happen to do something specific alongside of it. Mm. Um, Rob won't judge you, but I will. It's far too nice for that man. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like I, you know, we never wanted to open a special occasion place. You know, like fine dining restaurants, they become a special occasion because they're expensive by nature. Mm-hmm. If you're being served eight or twelve courses, you can't do that for like thirty quid, right? Mm-hmm. So it becomes expensive. We want to use the best liquor we can. So our drinks are, you know, I mean, they're not the most expensive in the city. You know, like you go to Marco Pierre White's or Aurel and they're charging, you know, 15 pounds for a cocktail or whatnot. Um, you know, we're not charging that. When it comes down to it, we just want to do what's right for us. And so our pricing, our offering, our service, it, it comes down to what we want, not fighting against the market. If you want to come here for a glass of wine after work, cool. Like, you know, we're here for that too. Um, but, you know, if you want to come and have a seven course multi course cocktail menu you can do that as well 
and you know we're one of the few places in the world where it's offered so that's pretty cool as well you know you can get a glass of wine pretty much anywhere yeah how did this come about because obviously you said obviously covid put a stop to singapore mm. so how did you go from oh, well, i've been off to singapore and now we're doing this yeah well i've been friends with al for a long time i met al through twitter he tweeted saying has anyone worked with ants and i had and so i messaged him back and I was <laughs> of course so, he did so <laughs> very alex Howard, isn't it yeah um and so i went and had a chat with him and brian when it was nomad we we you know it was supposed to be like a 20 minute coffee and it ended up being like two and a half hours and then i became like their drinks guy and so we did the drinks program at nomad that went into the wilderness and then uh, I went off, obviously, to own my own places. And then there was a little period where I wasn't doing any work with them. And I kind of came back into the fold very briefly while they had nocturnal animals um, to do a tasting menu, um, actually, uh, for Enigma. And um, then when we were in the UK, it's COVID, you know, everybody's locked down. I'll reach down, I think, or we commented on each of the social posts or something and and yeah we end up like going for a state sanctioned walk you know um <laughs> and he said you know what are you doing i said oh, i'm you know not really sure you know we were doing take-home cocktails you know under the 1881 brand which was you know super positive because they they were like going crazy and um he said you know have you thought about coming back into the the family as he calls it you know and you know the team at the wilderness we have now everyone's been with us now for i think the maybe like two years is like the the shortest service term of any member of staff i think um which is amazing and yeah, testament to you know yeah. like we never well i say we uh, alex you know the guys that own the place you know they didn't lay off anyone during covid there was no you know there was no downsizing there was none of that like if anything we've built the team mm. over covid we we took on more people um so that was very positive i came back in f- first kind of with reservations because I didn't really know I'd never worked in a fine dining restaurant I'd obviously played with them in the past but never been there as as a, as a full-time role but then we built the new bar and you know I love fine dining anyway so it was kind of like so that kind of gelled in pretty quickly um, and the customers just adored what we were doing and what what we are doing you know I hope that doesn't sound braggy um, but yeah like the the flights that we do alongside Sonal doing a hacked pro, hacked wine program that you know alex and i had visions of you know like six years ago and then finally put into process um you know a couple of years ago now and is you know apparently making waves it's just been like a really weird kind of journey but here we are with the two years it's taken to open this place you know we've built the wilderness to be everything we wanted it to be mm. with like a young dynamic team like there was there's very rarely ever a no it's always like, we have an idea. Let's go out and do it. You know, mm. that was always the thing. It's always like, just push, 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 push. And that's because Alex gets bored a lot. Mm. You know, like he, <laughs> he does something, he's like, bored of that, next thing. But that's that's why it is the restaurant it is. Like it's why it's, you know, seven years old and has had like three or four, like pretty major rebrandings. Mm. <laughs> and there's no but, dish... Um, there's no dish on that menu that's been there no. the entire time. All no. these restaurants, they all seem to have what that one dish. Yeah. Whereas Alex's are always different, mm. which is very the commendable. The Big Mac and, is probably the thing that's been around yeah, the longest, and that's I a think. very yeah. different to how it was. Absolutely. I mean, that, that well, di- the last that time I had it to the first so time many, I had yeah. it, is, they're completely yeah. different. Absolutely, yeah. How is um, it working with Cernon, like massive talent like Cernon, and then he comes yeah. on board? It's unusual to get two such talented 
like drinks people like remember when <laughs> yeah, the son will come just after you or no he before? was before me he was on he came on yeah, board before me like i think he joined in the january then we went in, then we went into lockdown, lockdown yeah. uh in like what was a march and then i joined in the august and we opened in the september because remember you joining and then we were like Oh, what the fuck? Are they both there? Is Sona still there? Yeah. And we were like checking. It was well, like, so yeah, often you, you, you don't see um, like a drinks guy and a wine guy, but because Sonal isn't your traditional wine guy, he doesn't have the same, I think like hangups as a lot of the like traditional Soms, you know, and that there are places now that have, you know, drinks people and wine people. Mm-hmm. But because those worlds are so expansive, they very rarely trim over. Like I love... Almost everything we do has some kind of wine built into it through vermouth and cherries and aromatize and, you know, everything else, fortifieds. I think wine adds a lot of depth and complexity and elegance to, to cocktails, and I think it's really, really important. And working alongside on I learn a lot, um, and I think it kind of opened his eyes to also what was possible. And manifesting hacked wines, for example, um, alongside him that was trippy because i i just assumed that he would rebel against it you know like you're doing what to wine you know like <laughs> and a lot of people would a lot of people would for sure yeah it. yeah and you know I, I what i also love is that you know he's he's so deeply set in the wine world you know a lot of people know who he is he's, he's a very well-known um man uh for his skill set an incredible sommelier and the fact that he wears those drinks so proudly you know, like he, he doesn't like talk about them in the restaurant and then like goes out, you know, down to London or goes off to Champagne or, you know, goes out to a, a vineyard somewhere in the world and like hides them. You know, he like talks about them actively and they are, you know, they are really unique and we're pretty sure one of a kind. We don't know if anyone else, like if anyone else listening knows that um, someone else is doing what we're doing, I would love to hear from them, like genuinely DM me. They're, they're so much fun because they're, they are rebellious and punk and yet respectful to the original, which is kind of the wilderness, I guess. And kind of Sonal as well, because he is that guy, like he's not got the classical training and he doesn't speak about wine the way I hear a lot of Soms do. He doesn't think the way a lot of Soms do either. Um, and when I bring him an idea or he brings me an idea, it's always so much fun to play out. Like we have one of our wines we call Chardonnay 2.0. And he brought me this idea of like wanting to democratize fine wine. Now, as a sommelier, who says shit like that? (laughs) I want to democratize fine wine. There is wines that exist that are like thousands of pounds a bottle. And he was like, I don't think those, those wines should exist for only an elite few. So how do we get those wines in a glass for everybody at a price point that anybody and everybody can afford. And of course, you can't do it perfectly. You can't replicate something perfectly because then why does the original exist? You mm. know, like when does the fake become the real kind of thing? But, you know, we, we explain to people what it is, they order it and they love it, which is what it exists for. Yeah. Um, and so things like that, you know, like we have... Um, one of the drinks on the flight, you can't order it, it only comes on the flight, called Old World, New World. We, we put a glass of wine down in front of you. We explain to you it's an old world glass of wine. We've treated the wine, we've not added anything to it other than like a treatment. And you smell it, you taste it. I think you guys have had it, right? I've had it, yeah. It's, it's an old world wine. It's, it's a classic Cote d'Iron. And then you swirl it in the glass like you would a glass of red wine and you smell it and taste it again and it's completely changed. And it's a new world wine. It's lighter, it's fruitier, it's softer. And that really messes people up. 
Because we're not even at the table. It's alchemy. It's not a drink. That's just... It's, it's, it's insane. Yeah, it's... But it's, wonderful but it's as well. it's fun at the yeah, same time. Yeah, right? like yeah, it, it, has to be, it has to be fun. Like, it can't, it can't not deliver, and it can't not be delicious. Those are the two, like, most important things. But I think but with wine, that especially, that gets missed a lot. The fun yeah, side of absolutely, drinking. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's not really there with wine yeah. too much. And you know what? That, that's really kind of one of the things that we're focusing on with this next exhibition, you know, because, you know, the, the current... Uh, tower exhibition at Atelier is a little bit more cerebral. You know, we're we're, we're focusing on flavors that are unjustly esoteric. You know, like we're working with the British pantry, so you go to bars and you see strawberries, raspberries, and blackberries, and you see mangoes and passion fruits and pineapples, and they're not from here. Mm-hmm. And yet, bars don't work with nectarines and nettle and gooseberry and gorse flower and you know damson um, and even things like blackcurrant. Um, mm. And that's 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 a massive shame because we have this incredible pantry of ingredients. You know, on this menu there are fifty-five flavors, and all of them are British in some way, shape, or form. You know, and it's not a political movement; it's it's a it's a it's a it's a, a fork in the sand. You know, it's like a line in the sand to say, you know, you don't have to go outside of our country to find tropical flavors, to find rich flavors, fruity flavors, berry flavors that are not the kind of things that you see on every other menus. I mean, um, I think did I hear you say when we came here that you have one that's basically pina colada inspired yeah exactly yeah so like that's just insane without using coconut or pineapple yeah you can get those flavors without those things but you you have to go outside of your ordinary life because it's yeah sure it's it's easy to grab coconut rum and add pineapple juice Mm. right like so do do you start with all right i want a pina colada and then you have to try and find something how does, I, mean, I don't even understand how that process well, works. Th- this particular menu started out as like a cause to celebrate the British pantry and then became more than that. Mm. It became, well, what, you know, we kind of got to a certain point and we said, well, where can we go with this? If we can do, for example, a pina colada, a Negroni, and an old-fashioned, you know, those are three drinks that are classics that pretty much everybody in the world knows. Mm. Um, but they require things outside of this country. So you need bourbon, sugar from the Caribbean, pineapples, coconuts, um, you know, Italian vermouth, amaro from outside this country. But could we do something that kind of represents those things, but in a way that is slightly different? And again, you know, we're not the only people to be doing this. There are lots of other people doing it, but it's not enough for it to be a, a change in the status quo. And that's really what we're doing. You know, everything about what I've been doing for the last 10 years has been about changing the status quo of cocktails from within. I'm not on the outside. I'm not on the periphery kind of going, I wish it was different. You know, I'm I'm nuts deep in it. You know, I'm like mm. investing my own money in opening a bar that only serves a tasting menu when only one other bar in the entire world does it. You know, we when we moved to 1821, we decided we were going to do things a little bit differently and we were going to pre-mix everything when pre-mixing was still, you know, like frowned upon. Like, you're pre-mixing stuff? Like, are you mad? Like, I'm not paying this much money for a pre-mixed drink. I want to see someone pouring it and shaking it and stirring it, all that kind of stuff. Um, so we we are inside of it, like trying to make a change from within. But yeah, with 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 terroir, it was it was about coming across flavors that we thought were interesting and seeing what we could do with them. And when we realized that we could do a pina colada, um, a Negroni, an old fashioned, and, you know, built within a menu of also, you know, um, fruity, tropical, berry flavors without using all those things that people associate with those flavors. You know, no raspberries, no strawberries, no blackberries, no passion fruits, no pineapples, you know, no mangoes, but still having tropical and berries and all those things from, from things that people don't expect or don't think about. That's really important. Um, and to present what is, you know, 55 flavors through 
um, 22 drinks. Each one unique and interesting and different and delicious, hopefully. <laughs> then we kind of go, okay, we did that. You know, and that's really what Atelier is about. It's about looking at someone with like a laser focus, like hyper focus, just for a short period of time. But because of the unjustly esoteric nature of gooseberries and nettles and, you know, pineapple weed, it became semi-cerebral. Like we're trying to explain to people these flavors that they're not really entirely understanding and that can come from just down the road. You know, explain to people that there's fig leaves available in Brindley Place is just you know, mind-blowing to them and that they can deliver a kind of like vanilla-y, coconutty flavor with with the right process, like really trips people out. But also, you know, we're coming towards the end of that now. And so with winter solstice, the focus is this kind of, you know, uh, celebration of winter and, and winter cultures. And so we're going to hyper-focus on that for, for five weeks and show people like a fun side because, you know, as we said, Drinking is about fun. It's about getting drunk, you know? You, you can do house. it elegantly <laughs> and, you know, like adultly and sensibly, but you're still getting drunk. The still goal is being a bit fuzzy, you know? Like, we don't need to be, like, paralyzed, falling in the canal outside, but we want you to be, you know, a little bit fuzzy and have a nice time and socialize with your friends because, you know, you go out with a person, you want to spend time with that person, you know, not queuing at the bar. When we opened Smultron Stella, we'd spend two, hour, two hours with people, and he tells the same thing over and over and over again. Drinks are too expensive, they take too long, and they're too sweet. And so 1881 became the, the narrative of let's change that. You know, so having savory drinks and strong drinks and boozy drinks. And I think we were one of the first bars to put, do like an ice stamp, which people just lost their minds over. Um, and, you know, it became that kind of thing of we were the bar that you went to for like serious drinks, but to have a good time and then we were closed that was sad but you know we always knew there would be something else you know for them or for us it just happens to be that you know we're back this is the place is well there, we is, hope so is we're one of the places you know like it's not a competition we're, there's there's plenty of room for everybody well i meant, I meant more in the sense of your place this yes is, yeah, no yeah, yes yeah, well yeah. yes i guess yeah my <laughs> name's on the door so yeah it, it has to be my place right so the the winter menu is that going to the UK-based ingredients as well, or no, no, no. no. So, so yeah. we're we're buying ingredients from all over the world, yeah, representing flavors from all over the world. So you know the the, the aspect of uh, of terroir and and focusing on the British pantry. Yeah, um, that was just for that exhibition. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. and we'll yeah. always we'll always represent flavors from the UK over flavors from elsewhere. Yeah, unless the thing we need is from elsewhere. Yeah, right. Like um, if we're focusing on. Um, tamarind and guava and teocates from Mexico. We can't buy those things here. Yeah. So we, we, we have to get them from there. You can't buy piloncillo from Birmingham. <laughs> you can't forage it. Um, so so we, we buy it from there. Like I say, it's not a political movement. It's not like we only buy British yeah, yeah, now. Yeah. It's, it's, it's about... It was that like, Yeah, it's about... Yeah. Like, yeah, it's been a soapbox. Yeah. You know, that this can happen. And we'll go back to it and we'll always have those little touches. You know, we want people to come here and have drinks find them delicious but find them interesting as well mm -hmm. right like we want to engage your brain as well as your mouth yeah um as weird as that sounds <laughs> so you can just do walk-ins you don't need to book absolutely yeah, yeah. we're open thursday friday saturday currently when we reopen on the 17th uh, for our new exhibition we'll be open on wednesday so we open at five so you can come after work on wednesday thursday friday from the 17th and on saturday we open at three so you can do a little bit of afternoon drinking, come after lunch, you know. Yeah, and so this next exhibition will run through to Christmas. Um, and if you want to 
have an awesome New Year's Eve. Ask me what we're doing for New Year's Eve when you get here. Yes. Mm. That sounds like a plan. Yes. Was I'm so any... excited for New Year's Eve. Yeah. yeah. The, the thing we're I'm doing is nothing to a New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve so we'll be yeah. Nothing to a New Year's <laughs> Eve. I, I'm literally so excited to do this 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 event. I've been trying to do it for 15 years. I'm a massive Bond nerd, so um, we're 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 playing with the idea that it's 60 years of Bond this year. So wow. any any Bond nerds or want to do something cool for New Year's? Sure Come and have drinks. Good for you then. <laughs> awesome. Was there anything else you wanted to bring up, Rob? Or was, did we get for everything that was on? Absolutely, yeah. Checklist is done. Yeah. Man, this has been absolutely incredible. Like, I knew it was going to be phenomenal. I've been looking forward to it for ages. and It's been good, man. Yeah. Can I cheers, do my, cheers just a couple of these questions? There's a couple I really want to know the answer to, especially Let's do with it. yourself. I'll be super quick with them. What's your favourite TV show? The American Office. Yes. I think we've spoken about that before, yes. actually. Oh, you put that thing on about uh, the head the other day, didn't you? The back <laughs> of the head. I'm not joking. I was drinking a cup of tea at the time and that came. I'd spat it all over the living room. Yes. I was actually sat on the train and I was like, I'm I'm putting this up immediately. Yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah. Like only, only, only Office fans would get so many of those things, right? But there's literally a, there's a parable for every situation in life. Yeah, in from Office. that show. Yeah. yeah. What's yeah. your favourite movie? Oh, my word. I don't know if I'd be able to answer that. No, it's too I, many. Yeah, movies is one of those things that I like. I'm obsessed with. Like, I have like 370 movies on my like iCloud account. Wow. Um, and like at one point I had like 500 DVDs. Big movie head, but yeah, I don't know if I would be able to pick like one favorite. I really love action movies. Like, I really love comic book movies, but I also love like old school stuff. I love uh, like foreign language films and. Uh, like yeah, there's literally everything in between. Yeah, I don't know if I bet. No, I wouldn't be. No, that's fine. That's a good answer either way. What's your favourite big fast food chain? Does that have to be English? Not necessarily. No. I would say In and Out Burger in a flash. A lot it's, of people have said that about it's, their foreign sort of choice. Yeah, unbelievably good. Uh, it's not. Yes, yeah, it's. it's it's a fast food joint with not fast food food. Mm. But UK, I, I think McDo still still wins out. Yeah. Yeah. I do love KFC. Like, I love KFC. Yeah, I'm big but KFC. McDo, kind of like, yeah, still still always there for me. Still, still the right. shining golden arches, right? So to, to be honest, it's the most common answer by a long way. Yeah. And Liam likes to find out what do you order. Right now, double quarter pounder with cheese. And I really love the... Um, uh, like nacho things they're like uh, they're like cheese triangles with like jalapenos in them and stuff no I haven't tried they're like, a, they're like a thing that they bring in and bring out kind of thing but at the moment double quarter, double quarter round cheese because the Big Mac has become smaller and smaller and smaller so now yeah, when I eat a Big, Big Mac, Mac anymore is it? it's like there's no meat taste it's like, it's like eating a salad sandwich yeah it's definitely um, changed so yeah so I've, I've migrated to the, the double quarter pound of cheese because you actually get a burger out of it. <laughs> you actually get, yeah, two <laughs> two actual burgers in it, yeah. And what's your favourite food or drink destination in the world? Singapore. Yeah, that's come up a lot as well as an answer. Loads of people. Singapore and New Orleans, I would, hands down, with maybe Las Vegas, the three best cities I've ever been to. I've been multiple times to all three, and all of them because they have incredible f and that's it. That was an easy one. Yeah, cool. Well, that's mine. Happy. Yeah, awesome. Thank Brilliant. you so much, guys. Thank you. Oh, thank you, mate. Brilliant. Must get a mat, go. <laughs> <laughs>